Okay, so um, today we will be continuing through the book of Jonah. So it's good to, to see everybody here today, and I am I'm going to do my best. I know last week uh, I went for like for like an hour almost. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it uh, less than that today. Um, I make no promises. This is a this is a weighty chapter uh, of of the book, as you can tell from from last week. Um, I, I, you know, looking back, I probably could have wrapped those five verses and just skimmed over it and got into chapter four, but there is, I have said it before, but there is, there's so much treasure in this book and really with, with every book of the Bible. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to, to just hone in on these last five verses of, of, uh, section three. So, uh, we have this sermon today, uh, the next one that I preach. So this sermon today and the next one, uh, will be about Jonah in Nineveh. He's going to make his exit the next time I preach, which is probably going to be mid to late August. If, if, uh, if the math works out here, um, but where we find ourselves here in Jonah three, uh, Jonah has exited the whale, right? He's, he's come out of the whale, uh, and he is, finds himself in the exceedingly great city of Nineveh. Uh, Jonah has not arrived empty-handed, but as we learned last week, he has arrived in Nineveh with this message of destruction, this incomplete message that he gives to the people of Nineveh. And uh, the, that, that message is, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, overturned, completely destroyed. And the result from this simple message, as we saw last week, was revival. The entire city comes repenting of their sin uh, the city has, and not only that, the city has actually believed in God. It actually says that in verse five. If you look at verse five of uh, Jonah chapter three, it says, "Then the people of Nineveh believed in God." Uh, that there, there was a there was an acceptance uh, that that we've seen here. Now, um, there are various points that I'd like to get into. Uh, we are going to be staying in this scene as we go forward. So. Uh, there are lots of different points, and uh, so we're going to go ahead and, and get into it. I'm going to read the passage, Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, and then we will, uh, we will pray and get into it. So Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, Nineveh, by the decree of the king, and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with, sack with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Oh God, Holy Spirit, we come before you today, Lord, and we, we ask for your help. Uh, God, I pray uh, for your people. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and their ears and their hearts, Lord, to the truth of your word. I pray, God, that you would help me uh, to be careful with your word, Lord, to be accurate with your word, uh, that you would move me out of the way and that your truth would be proclaimed to your people. God, please feed them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here we have uh, the repentance. Repentance is beginning to spread through the entire city. 
remember, this is a three days walk, three days walk just to walk around the circumference of Nineveh. And slowly but surely, the message is going out to every single inhabitant of the city. And uh, we are seeing this mass repentance on a, on a, really on the scale of revival. Now, um, I had mentioned that they had a new king installed, right? That God had been working through Nineveh, preparing them for this great act of, of repentance. And I had said that they had a, a new king. There were revolts uh, that were being shut down, things of that nature. And this king, Shalmaneser IV, uh, was, was set above. He was really the emperor, the emperor of the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you look at verse 6... It says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, king of Nineveh, that is not the same. It likely, I, I can't say for certain, nobody can say for certain, but likely that is not King Shalmaneser, Emperor Shalmaneser IV, who is receiving this message. Um, this was likely uh, one of the commander in chiefs or one of the governors or, or prefects who was over the city of Nineveh that winds up receiving this message. Now, Nineveh, although it was a military capital of the Assyrian Empire, was not the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And that's where Shalmaneser would have been. That, that would have been his area. So this is probably just a very high-ranking official. Last week, I had told you that there were two commanders-in-chief that kind of, you know, Nineveh kind of sat in the middle of them. Uh, whoever was over this was probably the one who had received this. Now, the commanders-in-chief or the people who inhabited the spot right underneath the king, they would have been viewed as royalty. They would have been called kings. Uh, uh, the Assyrian Empire would have had uh, many kings, but he was not the emperor more than likely. Okay, So this king is the one who, um, who had received the message. And we can tell other ways also. We, we can actually see in the decree that he makes and who the decree goes out to that this is probably not the emperor of the Assyrian Empire. But at any rate, the word had been spreading around and it eventually come to him. Uh, not only the news of what was happening, but the message itself came to him because he has the exact same reaction as the inhabitants of Nineveh, right? We can read a, a little bit further. Actually, before we do that, I just want to say that this is, a, this is a magnificent moment of the story. And this is why it's not worth to just glaze over this because we have, an emperor, we have this king who is repenting from his sin. Um, so often with, with emperors or kings or rulers, not just in these days, but even in our own day, right? It is a rare thing to see a king, someone who has great wealth or great power, absolute power, repenting from their sin and turning their wills over to the one true and living God. Um, I mean, you know, and, and this... Really, um, just looking at, at the, the, the trajectory of the church, one of our biggest difficulties that we have in the world is not necessarily the population. It's getting this message through to the rulers of the nations or the rulers of the state. This is a massive hurdle. We can call them to repent all day long and give them God's word all day long. I've, I've actually sat through this and tried to do this. And most of the time it's met with, who cares? Right. Like this is actually one of the one of the things that, that we do that we deal with. And, and when you're talking about power and you're talking about tremendous wealth, these things are a recipe for disaster. And, and specifically an unbelieving ruler. Right. Who has uh, who has these things, power and, and tremendous wealth. But it when we go back into this day, we look back into the time of Jonah. 
for a pagan king, one who is a polytheist, who has many kings, absolute control over this over the state of Nineveh. Remember, Shalmaneser's rule has not spread all the way throughout the Assyrian Empire. We talked about that a little bit last week. This guy has complete authority over this massive city that controls 80% of the armies for the Assyrian Empire. He, this guy has a, a lot of power, a tremendous amount of wealth. Um, kings have problems with this. They're not just going to accept repentance. We see this in scripture, uh, not only with pagan kings, as we're, you know, as we're talking about one right now, but even with believing kings, right? David and Solomon, if we think back into the scriptures, the things that these guys had, the amount of control and the amount of wealth, had God not interacted with both David and or Solomon, they would have been lost. They would have been completely ruined. As a matter of fact, Solomon for a time was lost and ruined, right? We had talked about Ecclesiastes, uh, it's been a couple months ago now, but uh, this is a very, very difficult thing that we're talking about. So what about today? What about examples of this, of how tremendous wealth and a pagan belief system, think about how that affects us today. I mean, we, we can think of Kim, Kim Jong-un was, my, was the example that I thought of today. Right, We have this pagan leader of the nation of North Korea, uh, private jets, personal trains. The guy spends $700,000 a year just on cognac brandy. And that is just a portion of the budget that he uses just for alcohol for him and his people. $30 million a year. $30 million a year that he spends just on his, uh, on his alcohol uh, uh, supply. All the meanwhile, while his people suffer and die. Now, I want you guys, I want you guys to think, uh, that, I mean, his people are starving, but I want you to think, what would it look like if a Christian missionary walks into his throne room and says, you, yet in 40 days, right? Yet in 40 days, North Korea will be overthrown. What do you think is going to happen there? He's probably going to get killed, right? He, what, what does he have any, he has no reason to fear the call of God to repent from his sin. The guy has $30 million worth of alcohol sitting in his bar. Like, he, you know, this is one of the struggles that we see here. I mean, we, and we can go into, we can go into many others. We could go into uh, Xi Jinping, the, the prime minister, the, the, the cult leader of China. We can go to the Husseins. We can go to the, the, the various kings and emirs of the Middle East. <clears throat> Imagine their reactions if the word had come into their throne rooms that God was going to overthrow their entire nations, uh, like I said, the preachers would be killed. Preachers are being killed in those nations today, not even for going and preaching to the king, but just to the people of these nations. It really kind of puts in perspective just how significant this moment in Nineveh is, right? We can see uh, that, that God is, is certainly <clears throat> at work. But what I want to do is I want to show two examples of this message of repentance coming to kings in scripture. Uh, we have the pagan example, and I'm even going to show you a Jewish example just to demonstrate how difficult this is apart from God moving. So if you'll please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. So just to lead up to this, in uh, chapter 2, 
Nebuchadnezzar had been having dreams that he wanted interpreted, right? We all know this story. And uh, the, his wise men, none of them could interpret the dreams. So God then comes and he blesses Daniel. He, he blesses Daniel. He gives him the secrets to Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, which he then goes and tells him that you're going to be over all the nations, right? You are going to be this great nation uh, in the world. Nebuchadnezzar is made very happy. Uh, he starts to show favor to uh, Daniel. In chapter 3, what winds up happening is Nebuchadnezzar winds up erecting a massive statue of himself, and he starts demanding the worship of that statue from all who are under the Babylonian uh, uh, rule, which Daniel then and the bunch, right, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they all refuse this, and that's when we have the furnace situation. They're thrown into the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar actually witnesses with his own eyes another that in the fire who is protecting Daniel, and he brings him out, and he actually acknowledges alongside his gods the one true living God. He actually refers to him as the Most High, and that's where we begin here in chapter 4. So he begins to have a vision. He sees this massive tree that is, uh, that is beautiful, it's fruitful, and everyone in the world can see it, right? Then the Holy One comes down and uh, chops the tree down to a stump. He wraps it in bronze while it's in the grass, and then the rains from heaven begin to rain on it, and he has absolutely no idea what this means. So then here comes Daniel with the, uh, with the interpretation of this vision. I want you to look at verses 24. I mean, we're going to read verse, verses 24 through 30. It says, this is the inter- so here we are with the interpretation. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the whole realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Now, let's stop there for just a second before I read the last two verses. He was called to repent. While it didn't say yet in 40 days, Babylon will be overturned. He does demonstrate that this is what the Lord God is going to do to you, right? It is he who is God over the heavens and the earth. And unless you repent, that's actually what takes place here in verse chapter in verse uh, 27. He says, break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. He's giving him the opportunity to repent. Let's read a little bit further to see how this goes. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. That's verse 28, verse 29. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Check this out. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? He completely disregards the word of the Lord. He completely disregards the threat of the Lord. This is Nebuchadnezzar, emperor over Babylon. He's the one that built all of this. He's the one that did everything. This is the attitude that we see when you mix absolute power, 
a pagan ideology and tremendous wealth. He could even be presented with the message of repentance and it's not going to happen, right? That's actually what we see with, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar here. And this is despite even being called to repentance. So the other uh, example that I want to give you, here's the pagan example. We do have a, um, a, uh, a, a Jewish example here, uh, and that is found in Jeremiah 36. And we don't have to turn there if we don't want to, because like I said, it's a lot to get to. I don't want to read like 900 verses of scripture, but uh, we, we can. So the king at this time, at the time of Jeremiah is Jehoiakim, and he is the son of Josiah. And what the Lord does is he has the scroll of the law presented to King Jehoi Jehoiachin. And after receiving the scroll of the law, unlike his father, Josiah, when Josiah received the scroll of the law, he read it and he tore his clothes. He repented. He brought massive reform to the nation of Israel to go back to keeping the commandments of God. But Jehoiachin does something completely different. He takes the scroll and he has it burned. He burns the scroll in the fire. There is no fear of God before uh, his eyes. Repentance, guys, repentance is difficult for normal people, but it is impossible for the rich man. Where have we heard that before? Even recently, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What I want you to do is let's flip back in Jonah as we continue to develop this idea. Uh, now we're going to go back to this king, this governor, this, this uh, ruler over Nineveh. We have this man with absolute power and control. Uh, with, uh, with Inside of Nineveh, he is a tremendously wealthy man, and he hears this message of destruction. Now we're going to see how he begins to act. He gets his moment, his moment of repent. And that's what we're going to read here in verse 7. It says, actually, we're going to go back to verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, he laid aside his robe from him, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. So now we have his actions. And last week we talked about sackcloth and ashes. But what he does is he comes off of his throne. That's significant to the text here. To come off of his throne is to leave the seat of authority. He takes all the authority that he has and all the power that he has, he leaves it there, and he trades it in for a pile of ashes. That's significant. He doesn't view his authority or his power over Nineveh as even something to hold on to. He trades it in for a pile of ashes. Then it says he lays aside his robe. Uh, these guys did not skimp when it came to the ornate robes and, and, and all of these. I mean, these guys were like peacocks. It was diamonds on, on every part. He lays aside his robe. This, the, the, the symbol of his wealth, and he trades it in for sackcloth. He doesn't presume that his riches or his authority earns anything or is anything. He is struck completely to the core. And unlike the rich young ruler, unlike Jehoiakim that we were just talking about, he does, with, he does this with no law, they don't have the law of God there inscripted in, in stone. They don't have any extra special revelation of God or of his desires. And there is no one for him to abandon these things and follow. Christ is not there in the flesh, right? Yet we have the reaction that all of these other men should have. We have it being displayed in a king who didn't even hear the preaching of Jonah. 
just the message that made its way through the grapevine to the throne room. And we have him completely repenting. Um, but not only that, it doesn't just, it doesn't just end with this sitting on the pile of ashes or, or uh, laying aside the robes and putting on sackcloth. This actually goes into how he is then going to rule his nation. Look at this. Look at, look at the rest of verse 7. It says, he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing, and do not let them eat or drink water. In Nineveh, by decree of the king. So this is the reason I say it's not likely the emperor of Assyria. Because his decree only goes to Nineveh. It doesn't go, if it was the emperor, the decree would have went across the entire Assyrian empire. This decree specifically just goes over to Nineveh. Um, but at any rate, the decree is sent out. He, he gives the decree. It goes out to the people. Uh, it may not have even needed to. You know, I had that thought whenever I was reading this. The decree probably didn't even need to go out. Everybody was already repenting from the greatest of them to the least of them. But see, this is how you know for this king that it is true repentance. Because not only is it in his actions, but it is in the way that he governs. The message then goes out to the people. Um, and this shows just how systemic, how deep-rooted uh, this repentance actually was. And then we see what the decree is. And this is fantastic. We laughed a little bit about this last week at the end of the sermon. Um, but we have this nationwide fast. Right? Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. And then if you look in verse 8, but both men and beasts must be covered with sackcloth. We have even the animals of this nation who are made to repent. And it's, it's, this is actually, this is amazing. So um, I thought that this was, and it is, it is a symptom of just how deep-rooted this repentance was that these people would cover their animals with sackcloth and ashes. But Funny enough, it is actually not a random thing. This is something that these people practice. So this has roots in Assyrian uh, uh, paganism. So uh, what they would do, so there were two old tablets that were discovered. Remember, a lot of this information that we have is from archaeological digs. Uh, they were uncovered from the 7th century BC. And on these two tablets that were demonstrating what the Assyrians did, they showed that Assyrians, in order to avoid bad luck, or bad omens, anytime they received a bad omen or any type of superstitious issue, they would actually take all of their animals, they would keep them from sleeping for three days, they would cover them with sackcloth, and not only that, they would actually bring them into the home to pray with them. Odd, right? Like Near Eastern practice, our brains today, people love their animals, but I've never invited the dog to pray, right? Uh, and the reason for this, and it, look, you can't fault the logic. You can't fault the logic not one bit. What they would do is, is that if bad luck came to them, it was eventually coming to the animals, so they better pull their weight, right? They better, they better join in on this, uh, this repentance to appease the, the, the gods that didn't exist. Um, but, but still, this, this was a, a common practice. Now they were, but, but the, the difference is, the difference with, with all of this is, and, and it's, we're actually going to see it in verse 8. Look, look at verse 8. It says, And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, from the violence which is in his hands. This is significant. Because these people 
in the in the Assyrian Empire, this confession of sin, this the idea they had no categories for repentance. They had no categories for repentance. I don't care which version of paganism you want to look at, what which one you want to study. When someone was when it was time to appease a god of a various different uh, religion or or polytheistic religion, it was always done retroactively. Something bad would happen, or there would be a solar eclipse, or a famine would begin, and now it was time to start trying to appease the gods. Now it's time after the fact. Now that we've started suffering, immediate suffering, that's when they began the, the, the path of repentance. Never for something that was coming down the road. Never. They didn't have categories for that, because they have no gods. While they may worship other false gods, they're not actually gods. There is no knowledge of future events. But with the one true living God, when he speaks of the things that will come, those things actually take place because he is the author of truth. He's the author of the future, right? And of the past. That's that's the difference. But um, yeah, the, the category made it to where they only knew that God was mad at them based off of what happened to them, not on a, based on a threat of what was coming down the path, uh, this is this moment for them is entirely new, entirely new. They, they, of, uh, as far as biblical repentance uh, goes, then then the king makes a statement concerning God in verse nine. Uh, that's profound. This this is a profound statement, and this is how you know it's the movement of God. This is going to blow your minds. So it says, "Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger, so that we will not perish." Now, these words may sound similar to you, right? If you flip back over into uh, chapter one, uh, the sailors say something kind of similar. They say, perhaps your God, it's in verse six, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And in fact, God was concerned about them so they would not perish. But there is another place in scripture where this is even more close. Like it is even closer to what this king is uttering here. Uh, And that is in the, Plus or minus 75 years, it would have been right around the same time, but it is from the mouth of the prophet Joel. Joel. And it's found in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is what he says. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Now the word evil there really means disaster or calamity, but here's the part. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. The king, this king, pagan king of Nineveh, who does not know Yahweh other than just for the last 15 seconds, right? Who does not know Joel, who doesn't even know Jonah, None of them utters the exact same words that the prophet Joel under uh, bringing the word of God to the people of Israel right around the same time. Now return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. And here with this king who does not know either, we get the reaction that the king in Jerusalem would not give. And all of this without having any extra information. The only information that he has is the only information that anybody in Nineveh has, 
which is in 40 days you will be destroyed. This is a significant moment. Look at verse 10. It says, God saw their deeds and that they turned from their wicked way. And then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do so. God responds. He then he sees the brokenness of this man. He sees the brokenness of the entire city. And God responds. He, does, he relents from the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. Now, passages like this are used, and, and this deserves to be talked about uh, at, with at least a little bit of length. So the, these passages are used by folks to try to prove uh, that, that the most important thing that we can get out of this text is the fact that man can choose, right? So God is waiting for all of us to repent, and then God responds to our actions. And they'll go even further to say, uh, this is why you need to humble yourself, because God is just waiting He's waiting for you to do something, and then God is God will be gracious to you, because man's choice is the most uh, is the most important thing. God responded, "Yes, He did, Amen." Right? We would I'll accept that all day long. These people, they did they humble themselves? Absolutely. Did they ask God, or did they start to do things so that they wouldn't receive judgment for the wickedness that they had been? performing. Yes, they confess their sin, and then God responds to that. He absolutely does respond to human choices. He does. The problem, though, comes when someone says, see, waiting to God. God is just up there just waiting to see what we're going to do. God needs, God needs to see what we're going to do. God changes his mind. Because it just said right there, right, that God relented. God said he was going to do something, and then God changed his mind. God changes his mind, but that leaves us with a problem, doesn't it, scripturally? Because God is immutable. God does not change. So then how are we then to, re- uh, to reconcile this? You know, the, the, uh, from the other side of the fence, they would say, well, see, God looks down the corridors of time. He sees all of the things that we would do. Uh, and then uh, he, he, he'll change his mind or, or make his decision, make his decree based on what he sees man is going to do. Um, that is really saying God has no decree. God has declared the beginning from the end. God is all-knowing. See, in order to do this, you actually have to give up the idea that God is omniscient, that God just, in and of himself, by his very own nature, he is omniscient. He knows all things. You ultimately wind up giving up omnipotence as well. God is then not all-powerful because he's going to wait. He wants to see what we're going to do. Right? He's not going to uh, he's not gonna kick down any doors. He's not all he's gonna do is gonna offer these things. Um, and that, I, I can't stand this. I, w- I was listening to uh, a sermon uh, the other day that dealt with another uh, passage like this in, in, with, with Moses, right? When, when Moses goes and he intercedes for the nation, God is gonna destroy every one of them for worshiping the golden calf. And it's turned into this. Um, we wind up missing the forest for the tree because now we're sitting here talking about whether God is omnipotent or God is omniscient, whether he changes mind or he doesn't change his mind. We're going to deal with this real simply. We're, and it's so, it's, this is an easy, easy argument to make. If, if Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, let me read this to you. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make good? 
God does not change his mind. He doesn't change his mind. So then what is it that we're reading here? God has a decree. He has decreed all things. He has decreed everything that comes to pass within time, within this world that we live in. God has decreed before the foundation of in eternity past. So God is not changing his mind. God has predestined. When we talk about predestination, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, because this moment, guys, the last thing that we're going to let happen in this sermon is for any glory to go to Nineveh. No glory belongs with the Ninevites here. This is not a story about about a, a, a smart, humble Nineveh. This is a story about a gracious and compassionate God. And when we talk about God who predestines things, he predestines the end, right? Nineveh was going to repent because God had decreed for Nineveh to repent. But God also predestines the means. He predestines the end and he predestines the means. If I was meant to wind up in Florida, God also predestines the way that I'm going to get to Florida and in the car that I'm going to Florida in. That's what's happening here. God was going to bring about the repentance of Nineveh by threatening them. And the threat was the mercy. That's where the mercy's at. And we had looked, about, we had looked at that last week. Even Jesus, Jesus himself says in, in Luke chapter 17, when he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, when he's talking about the world, they received no threats. They were, they were marrying and being given in marriage. They were building and they were planting and all of a sudden the water. And then in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of a sudden brimstone and fire from heaven. There was no warning. God used this threat to bring the people of Nineveh to repentance. We have absolutely no problem with that. Did God respond to their actions? Absolutely. Guys, when we read the Bible, when we, when we look at passages like this, the one thing that we cannot do is then try to ascribe our idea of relenting and applying that to the one true living God whose ways are above ours. If he is all-powerful, then he must be all-powerful. If he is omniscient, that means he knows all things. We don't have to create categories. God is allowed to be God. We miss the forest for the trees. God showed gracious compassion towards these people that were not his covenant people. That's the story. Not does God know or does God, you know, did he decree? Well, how, how do we make all of this work? God is, God's relenting is not like man's. God interacts with his people. Uh, the fact that God threatened these people, I don't want to lose just how gracious that actually is. What is a threat? Right? There's been threats throughout this entire book. There was the threat of the storm that was coming upon the ship that Jonah was on, him and the sailors. We have threats all over the place. What is the, what is the, the, the object of a threat? What, what is the desired outcome of a threat? Well, if a rattlesnake is rattling his tail, that is for me to now change my course of action. We have a game plan change because something bad is going to happen if I continue acting in this way. The threat that God makes to them is, is, uh, is a mercy. Um, pure and simple, pure and simple. So uh, Nineveh did have a choice and Nineveh chose. Um, I would actually say that, that God's grace is irresistible. 
that once they were faced with this, God had been moving, God had already prepared them to, uh, to change, and therefore they had no other choice but to change. When anytime we bring the gospel, when we bring the gospel, and what I gave to you guys last week with a message of destruction, and, and I gave that to you, that is a threat designed to make the hearer change their path. The question was, can that happen apart from God moving? No. And if it does, we're talking about moralism. We're talking about self-preservation. If I'm a doctor and you come in and you say, hey, you continue, to living, you continue living like this, you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to have a heart attack at some point. There's people that will change their direction. That's a threat, right? I don't want to have a heart attack in my 50s or what have you. I'm, I need to start changing the way that I do things. But what we're talking about is a rending of the garment, a breaking open of people, a breaking open of a king who had everything, that can only come by the power of God. Then God responds to them. He tells, or he then relents of the calamity that he was going to bring on them. God is gracious, right? And he demonstrates, demonstrates his grace uh, through this. You know, the interesting thing, and it's, you know, there's a lot of, the, uh, through the commentators and through uh, the study of this, there's, there's a lot of questions as to whether uh, Nineveh's repentance was real, whether this king's repentance was real, whether there was conversion, because it doesn't, the text doesn't tell us that these guys were, went on to become circumcised. It doesn't say that they, that they, uh, uh, that they were children of Abraham. Like there, there's a lot of questions here, but God being sovereign over all of this, God's sovereign over the fact that, that Israel didn't repent. He's sovereign over the fact that Nineveh did. Do you know that just 30 years later after this, just 30 years after this, many of these same people, many of these same people's sons and sons who then went on to become a warrior in the, in the, in the army for the Assyrians carried off the northern tribes of Israel into an exile that they would never return from. These very same people, and God was even sovereign over that. You want to know what God doesn't relent from? Because we're, we're sitting here talking about God relenting. I'll tell you what God does not relent from. He doesn't relent from his promises. He does not change his mind from his covenant. He doesn't. And he does not change his mind from his decree. Nineveh was going to repent. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, uh, verse 7. This is what the Lord says. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring upon it. He will also, and then he goes on for the rest of that passage, to he will also revoke blessing from the nations that he has said he will bless. Uh, that is a great, great comfort for where we sit in our nation today. It's also terrifying because we see the blessings that God has given this nation and that he is taking these things away. He is revoking the blessing that many in this country have, have, have shared. I mean, but also 
it is a great comfort knowing that God, when there is real repentance, when God is brought into the center and people see their sin for what it is and see God for the glory that, or for, because of his glorious grace, that God will relent from destroying a people. How badly do we need this right now in this nation? Badly. There has to be uh, repentance. Now, do we still have remnants of the blessing that God has given this country? Are there still remnants of that blessing? Absolutely. Right? We're all able to meet here in church today. We're all able to, to lift up the name of the king. We can walk out and we could start evangelizing right there down Collins Street with absolutely no threat. Um, I mean, unless somebody really doesn't want to hear it, but there's nothing that's going to come down from the state. Nothing's going to come down from, from, from uh, the government. But it is, uh, it is being revoked. Our blessings are being revoked. That's taking place. Uh, the nation, as we continue to, to watch the news, there are people are being given over more and more to their sin. It jumps off of the, the, the newspaper. Um, but our nation is not beyond help. It's not beyond help. It's not beyond a move of God. Remember that God predestines the means and he predestines the ends. Will the nation that we live in, will it repent? Will it turn to God? I have no clue. God does. He knows. He's the one who's, he's the one who's predestined the ends. He's the one who's predestined the means. As a matter of fact, the message that I gave last week, that message of destruction, that's the message that has to go out. In order for someone to be broken over their sin, in order for someone to rend their garments, to put on sackcloth and to sit in a pile of ashes, that message has to go out. It is the only hope that we have for the redemption of this nation. It's the only hope that the person who lives right around the corner has for redemption for their home, for the redemption for their souls. It cannot be apart from the gospel. So what message then so what message should we bring to our kings and rulers? Well, the message that was brought to this one. I think of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. That's the message of destruction. You see, the beautiful thing about being uh, uh, reformed Christians, of having this view of Christ, we don't believe in a Christ that's just sitting on the throne in heaven who's waiting for his moments to rule and to reign, who's, who can't wait for the millennial kingdom, right? Because then he's actually going to be able to practice his authority. That's actually not the case. We have a king who sits on the throne, who is seated at the right hand of God, and he is seated there with power. In Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, he said, "Go, since all authority on heaven and in earth has been given to me, he already has it, therefore go. The way that we see this thing flip over on its head is we begin to act like Christians built on this authority that belongs to our king who sits on the throne where he rules and reigns now. If we want to see kings being broken over their sin, we need to take them the message that kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. 
We begin to act and we begin to vote and we begin to do the things as Christians. If we're tired of seeing horrible politicians, can we have a good Calvinistic brother or sister run for office, please? Somebody who is going to look on the, on the ways that we govern our country and are going to do so with a fear of God. Someone who knows what it is to be in sackcloth and ashes before a holy God and that every single decision that that brother or sister makes is they're going to be accountable to the king for that. Who will kiss the sun in their actions. That's the kind of government that we need. Those are the kinds of politicians that we need. We have to bring that message. We have to actually go to war. Not physically go to war. Not with weapons of this world. Right? But spiritual weapons. Effective, effective weapons. You know, we, had ta- we were talking, uh, you know, in the catechism class before this sermon today. And we were talking about uh, what, what can we do to end abortion? What can we do to actually combat that? We have, there has to be changed hearts. Yes, there has to be. The gospel must go out. This is, it's, it's futile if the gospel doesn't go out. However, we still have war to make on the evil, on the being given over. We still have to be bringing the message of repentance to people and doing something in the meantime. Christianity, and, it, and it's, this, is, this is the fault of, of the Western civilization. This is the fault of where we live, where we just want to be comfortable. I just want to go to church on Sunday, right? I want to go to Texas Roadhouse. I want to watch the Cowboys game after that. And then I want to go to work on Monday, right? We can all, this is the, the, the dream, the American dream of the American Christian. But the truth of the matter is that we find ourselves in a world that is hostile to the king, a world that is hostile to his commands. A, wor- a, a world that, that many of them don't even think about needing to repent. They have no idea what to repent, repent from. Everything is lawful in this country. What we need to do is we need to be prepared to do what God has called us to do, what Christ has called us to do, to stand on the authority that he has, that he has earned for himself by taking on punishment for his people, by earning All of the nations, all of them have been given to him as an inheritance. All we have to do is be faithful to get up and go. Do you have a neighbor next door that does not know the Lord? This message can be brought to your neighbor. And that is how the leaven, that's how the leaven spreads through the whole lump. This is our call. This is what God calls us to. This is an amazing moment. But guys, what this tells me, seeing this king broken over his sin like this, we need to be prayerful. We need to be prayerful that God will, will institute revival. God can and will institute revival. He will. We just read it. God, may what happened to the king of Nineveh happen to the governor of New Mexico. God, may, may what happened to the governor or to the king of Nineveh happen to the president of the United States. Can you band together a certain amount of Christians to go in and preach the message of destruction? Because it's not if. That's the one thing that we learned last week. The message of destruction. Destruction is not if. It is when. If we do not repent from the evils that we practice in our streets. You want to know what's awesome? And I use that word meaningfully because it's the work of God. 
What's amazing about this story is that the promise of destruction was Nineveh, and yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh was absolutely overthrown. It was absolutely overturned. It just wasn't destroyed. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 2, some of the uh, the passages that I just read to you from, he says that the son has been given a rod. The one who has been given all nations is his inheritance. He's been given a rod. And with that rod, he strikes the vessels, shattering the nations like earthenware. And Christ has two purposes in that. There are some vessels of earthenware that he means to shatter and he means to destroy them by breaking them. Then there are other nations that he strikes with the intention of building them back up to be an honorable vessel for the use of the king. God can absolutely, absolutely turn the tides that we see going on in our city, in our state, in our world, in our nation, whatever, whatever you want to call it. He has the ability to do this if we would call out to him. If this, can you imagine guys, if this nation, I'm talking about real revival. I'm talking about great awakening type stuff where people start just widespread being broken over their sin and everybody comes piling up. Could you imagine the glory that God gets from himself knowing that that would be done through our prayers? God uses the prayers of faithful men and women every single day to bring about his purposes. He's actually ordained the prayers of faithful men and women to bring about his practices. Now, will you pray for revival? That, that's what I'm asking you. Because I, I can only think of how amazing it would be to see the entire city of Clovis, New Mexico being broken over their sin and coming flooding to the king. Can you imagine what that looks like? This is not fairy tale stuff. This is stuff that God has done. Will we believe that he can do that? Will we petition him that he will do that? Even if it doesn't happen in our own lifetime, this is a great message of hope. And it's only a message of hope because God is gracious and compassionate. The whole entire key to the book of Jonah. So I call on you to do that today. If he did it for Nineveh, he can absolutely do it for us because that's the only way things are going to change. Okay, let's pray.